Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we pay tribute to the people behind the keyboards in cybersecurity to find out what motivates them, what drives them, and talk about some of the incidents that have helped shape their careers. Today, I'm joined by Ryan Kobar, who has had over 20 years' experience in cybering and has tried his hand at many things, from pulling miles of Cat5 cable to instant response, hunting nation-state threat actors and conducting research across the public and private sector, and along the way, developing an abject hatred of printers. Ryan currently works at Splunk as a serving as a distinguished security strategist and leader of Surge, Splunk's blue collar for the blue team security research arm, with the noble and perhaps unofficial goal of helping other people look good to their bosses. So welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thank you, James. I appreciate it. So we'll start right at the beginning. How did you first get into technology and cybersecurity? Sure. Um, the easiest way to describe it is I was really bad at turning in assignments in high school. Uh, that was probably the fastest way. Um, although I, I won't, I won't demur and say I was a, a probably a fairly bright child. I was not good at getting things done in a high school sort of environment. So I had very low GPA. And at some point I realized if I wanted to have a future at all, I should find some sort of thing that was perhaps more structured. So I ended up joining the U.S. Navy and going into system administration. And while I was there, I really fell in love with the concept of security. But this was back in, gosh, 1999, 2003 timeframe. And you know, security was something that existed, but it wasn't necessarily the primary role that you could just do. It was certainly not at 18. Uh, so I started off as a Unix admin, a help desk. Um, as I you know, alluded to in my bio, I pulled a lot of Cat5 cable, crimped a lot of Cat5 cables uh, on an aircraft carrier, which was a unique experience. Um, helped. Uh, by the time I left, I was running a um, network and sysadmin team, about 20 or 30 people, and supporting about 5,200 users across the ship. So it's kind of a, uh, a rocket, rocket class worth of uh, work to get into cybersecurity, or rather at least system administration and network engineering at a very young age. So I've heard a lot of people complain when they've started off in IT and of running Cat5 cable and popping you know, ceiling panels and having to do all these things. I'm assuming doing that on a warship is a, a completely different ball game entirely. I think some of the complaints are probably similar. Um, you know, I think especially if you have as much gray in my beard, you kind of have a white, orange, orange, white, green, blue, white, brown, brown, uh, kind of all the way through in your head forever, just because you've crimped so many cables and doing a lot of network tests. But yeah, there were some interesting things. The ship I was on, the USS Kitty Hawk was, oh gosh, I think it was 50 years old or 45 years old, well, 50 years old when I was on it. So it's quite an old piece of steel. Um, and it had a lot of previous cables run because it had been all the way through. I mean, when they started, they only had electrical cable and telephone, plain old telephone system pots. Um, in the eighties, it was retrofitted and they put coax with BNC connectors. And then when I was there, they were switching over to fiber and cat five. So our job was to cut the coax, replace it, then rerun the, the cat five. And as you alluded to, a, a warship has quite a few intricacies and differences than perhaps a regular office. So uh, things like you had to make sure everything was watertight because you're actually going through a hole in a watertight compartment. So you have to pack it full of a, you know, basically a, a 21st century version of oakum, right? So it's like a squishy putty to make sure that no water can get through. Um, you don't have cable runs on the ship. So you're always trying to find areas you can keep the cables up. One of my favorite stories is just like, I remember working with a an officer who computer kept dying over and over again and he couldn't figure out why he kept losing connectivity and it was over and over again finally realized one of the more junior people had actually run the cable on top actually through he drilled a hole and then put it on either sides and put it through a fluorescent light cover that was about two meters long and so the cable is actually basically within the electromagnetic sphere of this you know fluorescent light so what the officer was experiencing was every time someone turned on the light, it was basically frying the connection. Uh, and when they turned it off, he would get internet back on. Um, so things like that, um, having Alcatel switches exposed in a hangar bay to ocean air um, was always an interesting area, you know, going through a lot of switches and uh, connectors, but it was quite a bit of fun. Learned a lot about basic networking, that's for sure. And I'm assuming you've obviously got limited staff there, perhaps limited connectivity back to shore. There's a lot of things where you've just got to bodge it, wing it, learn it on the go. Absolutely. I mean, it's terrifying to say this out loud, but this was pre-Google. Uh, this is um, Dogpile, Hotbot. Uh, I was actually just talking to a, a person I mentor recently. These were the days of TechNet CDs. Uh, we ran Windows NT 4.0. 
And so once a year or once every quarter or something like that, uh, somebody would actually helicopter onto the ship a binder that was about four or six inches thick full of CDs. And the way we fixed Microsoft Windows problems was by looking through the index, finding the right CD, loading up the CD, reading the help file. Um, it was a lot of work like that just because the internet, although it did exist, it was, I think it was 1.5 megs a second or something like that um, through a satellite relay that went into space, then went down to Hawaii or Guam or Diego Garcia. Um, and it could be a little bit slow. And we were at least privileged enough on the aircraft carrier to have it. Some of the smaller ships in our battle group wouldn't. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. There was a lot of um, learning on the fly and learning that, uh, no, it's usually not DNS or sorry, it's usually not the drivers, but it is probably DNS. And then when it isn't, it is the drivers. So reinstall. And in, in terms of kind of the focus there, so, you know, a lot of industries will be very heavily focused on the confidentiality and integrity of data. Presumably in those sort of scenarios, it's just all about availability largely that you've just got to keep systems up. You know, that's an interesting question. Uh, I worked on an unclassified network. We did have networks that were much higher classifications, secret and top secret, et cetera. I worked primarily on the, on the unclass. And the interesting thing there is at some point, somebody had sold the Navy a contract to connect fiber all across the ship um, because it would prevent tapping, which of course with Cat5, you can pretty easily tap. Um, I also think there's a little bit of, as we would say, pork associated with this because um, I, I've never to this day seen a printer connected to a fiber cable uh, and the cost for each fiber card and then fiber connected to each printer was exorbitant when we were still running cat five in between the core routers and the, um, you know, the computers. So, you know, there was a confidentiality aspect to it, but to your point, it was also less, we had much bigger problems if we had a, an adversary local on the ship. Um, that's for sure. So availability was really built in. There's a term now, and I was almost arguing with my boss the other day about it, cyber resiliency. This this idea has really taken off in, in executives lately. And at first I was really confused because I had learned about cyber resiliency 20 years ago because we would have things like you had to design your networking on the ship to be able to handle missiles coming port or starboard. So no matter where you took damage on the ship, you had the ability for open shortest path first OSPF to reroute traffic around wherever the damaged networking was. That was my definition of cyber resiliency. Um, obviously, that's a little less uh, warlike these days, but you know that that was certainly built into everything we did. And availability was to your point, King. Yeah, absolutely. And when people talk about threat modeling workshops and things today, that's is a very different uh, modeling for which side of the ship might be struck by a missile or something. It's uh, fascinating to be in that area. So. With your, your experience in the Navy, obviously, that's given you a really broad grounding skill set in a lot of areas. There are lots of interesting things to learn. What did you do then to continue your journey into the cybersecurity? Sure. Well, when I was there, I was lucky enough to have a friend and a mentor, Marcus LaFerrera, who I actually now work with at Splunk, oddly enough. Um, and he was really into security there as a hobby, uh, trying to find or work through anything. And then one of my last roles on the ship was actually during the uh, second invasion of the Gulf War. Uh, where I was, quote-unquote, the lead for cybersecurity warfare on the ship, uh, which sounds very grandiose, so I love putting it on the, the CV, but the reality is um, if they had gotten through the multiple levels of Navy defenses and got to my router, my Cisco firewall, we were probably screwed anyway. Uh, but that really started pulling on this thread in my mind of just the difference between dealing with a, you know, a clustered system that crashes because of misconfiguration or bad drivers and the idea of an active adversary trying to manipulate data or steal from you. And that really, I was really interested in that. But at the time, there wasn't as much role, there weren't as many roles, there wasn't as much of a career path for security. Uh, so after that, I was, you know, I actually got out of the Navy. I was hired as a contractor back to the Navy, uh, which was a wonderful deal of doing the same job for 10 times the money. And then I was lucky enough to be sent to the UK to work with, um, at the time it was called uh, NCIS, not Navy Criminal Investigative Service, but rather the National Criminal Investigative Service for the UK. Uh, so part of the home office, um, quasi-intelligent community, and worked with them helping secure a system uh, that they had purchased from a US defense contractor. So I was actually in Westminster, uh, right across the river from a whole bunch of exciting things and work there and kind of build up my security knowledge, but more from a security engineering point of view. Then after that role, I ended up working for a small company in Texas um, where I joined my wife and she was, or that company was a marketing company and they used to lease data. 
Um, you know, we didn't buy data. We never bought data, but we would lease terabytes and petabytes of data. And this was in the mid 2000s, which was excessive. They actually ran it through mainframes. And because of that, what we had were over 100 audits a year or something like that from customers because we were holding their data in our systems to do computations on. They wanted to make sure that we were keeping it safe. And so from that, I helped build out one of the first socks in the company, build out a knock, and also dealt with a lot of the compliance that started coming down, uh, PCI, Sarbanes-Oxley, areas there. So I really learned information assurance is you know, what I didn't realize at the time. I was reverse engineering, but I was learning information assurance, doing information assurance, setting up people to look through, uh, you know, track adversaries when we did have to deal with that, do instant response, all sorts of things there. Just at the time, I didn't really know the name of it. Um, and I got really interested in it, ended up moving back to the UK within the same company, went through a, a degree program in the UK, um, got a master's degree, which is a little odd because I don't have an undergraduate, but the UK is kind enough to allow a years of experience in lieu of undergraduate. So I went to the University of Westminster and learned a lot more around that policy and procedure aspect of cybersecurity and kind of kept going and saying, yep, this is what I want my career to be. And then pulling that thread back to Marcus, uh, who was my mentor in the Navy, he called me, he was working at DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, and said, hey, I just created a nation state threat hunting team. I'd love to help you have you come help me lead it uh, and run it. So I actually moved to the US again, went to DC and for four years was pretty much, you know, if I actually had a formal master's degree, I then went into a PhD of nation state hunting, threat intel, and instant response. So a uh, pretty long answer for a short question, but that's kind of the the gist of how I fell in love with it, kind of got much better at it, and then did it in anger. Was the, the traveling the world side of it, you know, was that deliberate or just, just a happy coincidence? Uh, a little bit of both, actually. When I was in the Navy, I was actually stationed in Japan. So I've lived in Tokyo. I've lived in London. I've lived all over the U.S. Um, you know, with my wife's work, we basically lived in Madrid a couple times over the years. Uh, so I do love traveling, and it, it helps. You know, one of the things I talk about a lot in cybersecurity and threat intelligence is breaking biases. And I think one of the values that I bring to an organization is I have a global perspective. You know, having been educated in the U.K., having lived in Japan, having worked embedded with colleagues who were not American. Uh, it really changed a lot of my perceptions and broke a lot of the biases that I had. And especially when I look at adversaries and understanding that not everyone is looking through the same lens has been something that I really valued. So highly recommend if anyone can uh, make that happen in their life. And, and how have you found the transition between kind of the military and the government side of things into the, the private sector? Have you found that they, they complement each other? Yeah, so it's been interesting. Um, I When I left DARPA, I went to Splunk and, you know, first my role uh, here, which is actually very similar to what it was eight years ago as it is today when I joined, was really to be the security guy who worked at Splunk who used our tool um, and in the private sector. And at first I was really worried that I was going to lose the mission. You know, when you work in private sector, when you work in government, you often work for less money, but a sense of satisfaction of doing your job well and making a much bigger difference than yourself, giving back to the world or your country, whatever it be. Um, and I was very concerned that I would miss that. I was lucky enough, though, in my role uh, here at Splunk, where I work with governments now globally. I have a much bigger global impact in security than I ever did locally at my small desk in a classified room in DARPA. As much as I loved it and as, as thrilling as it was, I, you know, here I work with the with CERT New Zealand. I work with NCSC in the UK. I work with ANISA in Europe. I work with CISA in the US. I work with CSA in Singapore. So the nice thing about security is it is still so heavily oriented to governments and large companies, and you can still make an impact. And I'm lucky enough in my role where I can still scratch that itch of, you know, fulfilling a mission just now on a much bigger basis. So with, with all the aspects of the role there, you've turned your hand to a lot of different things. And one of the things I read in one of your bios was you discovered you didn't want to be a malware reverse engineer. Yeah, um, I, I have a wonderful uh, relationship with SANS. Actually, last week I was just in Washington, D.C. I'm a uh, advisor on uh, the the SANS uh, Threat Intelligence Summit. And I think the, the training there is top-notch, albeit very expensive, but you get what you pay for. In this case, you get probably the best training that exists in the market. And uh, years ago when I was at DARPA, uh, we did a lot of malware analysis, but we mostly did dynamic. And for those who haven't really experienced this world, um, there's a difference between dynamic and static. Dynamic is you're running it through 
tools that automate the malware, they execute it, and you're kind of just looking at the telemetry that exits the malware. When you look at static, that's actually reverse engineering. So that's taking the binary using a tool like IDA Pro or Gahydra now and actually looking at the assembly or the raw language. Um, and I was like, well, I'm drilling really good at the dynamic. It's really fun. It's like a puzzle. This is great. And you know, my boss at the time was like, oh, you should take this GREM, uh, G-R-E-M class from SAN. So I was like, wonderful. So I went through, you know, it's a six or seven day course at the time. I think it was six. And the first day it was like, oh, this is what malware is. So I was like, no problem. And you went to day two. They're like, we're going to do dynamic analysis. In the morning, I was like, nothing new here. Afternoon, I was like, oh, this is great. I'm really getting my money worth it. I'm learning some new techniques. I'm learning some new methods. Then day three, it was like, okay, we're going to really start digging more into the dynamic. I was like starting to stretch myself here. This is great. That's why I paid the money. Had lunch, came back. And Lenny Zelser, phenomenal instructor, by the way. This is no, um, this entire story is not in any way a, a character assassination. He's a warm, empathetic, effective teacher. And he started off by saying, hey, by the way, everyone dust off your assembly knowledge from university. We're going to be really digging deep into pumps and you know, pops and jumps. And I said, I, I'm sorry, what? And that's when I suddenly realized I was so far out of my depth. Um, and I certainly could have gone back and learned assembly language. Uh, but by the end of the three days, I just realized that I never wanted to do that as a job. I had no desire to do it. Um, and so it was very useful because I didn't waste any more time. The good news was I can now read and understand and synthesize reverse engineers work and also very valuable to know I didn't want to do that as a career and I should just pay other people to do that work for me either in beer or currency so uh, I think it was a win for me one way or the other no I think that's that's a really good point as well that you know there are things you can pick up in your career that you just decide aren't for you and you shouldn't be afraid of telling people that you know when you're looking for a new role or looking for other things that maybe that's not an area that interests you and making sure that you know what does uh, having been there myself and found dynamic malware analysis very interesting, and then someone showed me some things in IDA Pro, like I say, it's useful to be able to understand where it's going, but spending the hours looking through all the code, less so for me as well. So Not uh, for me. Not for yeah, me. absolutely. So one of the other stories that comes up uh, in your career was uh, being from the north of England. I'm a fan of pies. So uh, you and a pen test and a pie factory. So uh, I'll let you tell us the story. Yeah, these are slightly different pies. They're, they're sweet rather than savory and uh, fruit instead of meat. But yeah, the, so years ago, I was doing an assessment for a customer. And uh, the customer really did a lot of work around Pacer. They're a large global corp company that factories all over the world. And they're, they're well-known. I'm not going to name any names, but they're well-known for creating these pies. And as we were doing the first day of the assessment, so that pie will be important later on. Uh, the first day of the assessment, I noticed that this gentleman who was I was working with was very organized. He had come from the nuclear power, uh, basically, realm. He had done his whole career in private or public sector before, very organized, had volumes and volumes of policies and procedures. And as I mentioned previously, I'm a little bit of an IA nerd. Like, I really appreciate that. So I was like, oh, that's really good. That's really solid. It's like, oh, thank you. And I, I noticed on his wall, he had a giant, you know, plot printer, a diagram of the network and it looked like it had class a ip addresses so giant huge number of these ips so i was like oh that's kind of interesting you don't really see fully populated or even mildly populated internal class a networks but obviously someone didn't want to learn subnetting so i get it we're fine um off we go we're kind of going through and i'm, I'm looking through various bits and one of the aspects i'm asking about was pen testing he's like oh we have a rigorous pen testing um you know routine we go through it every oh, every couple of weeks or every couple of months sorry he's like we really in, redo the findings he's like and you know we do the entire organization except for the pie factory and i started, started laughing just because like oh haha ha. like you know we don't scan the pie factory like what a funny little joke that i don't understand but i'll laugh at your bad joke and he just stopped and looked at me seriously he's like no kovar we don't scan the pie factory and i said i'm, I'm sorry i don't understand so he opens up this book and uh, the book, like I said, it's like, you know, volume four, you know, page 375, like he blows off the dust, you know, subparagraph six alpha, you know, bullet C. And it says, do not scan the pie factory. And I said, okay, I gotta, I gotta ask why. And he kind of points over to the, the plot print and he said, oh, over there, he's like, you see that big, you know, amorphous blob of class A. He's like, you know, in our global network, we have these basically IOT devices. And, you know, this is a little bit older. So, um, you know, not IOT devices, but IOT devices. 
He's like, and they control and they regulate the temperature for the pies uh, when they're being cooked. He's like, these are the propane basically jets in the you know convention or the 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 factory line of pies. He's like, and one day we were doing a pen test and we were letting him go wild. He wasn't doing anything too crazy. Basically, an NMAF scan to try to determine where everything was, and he might have put a little bit too many um, aggressives on the NMAF scan, but it wasn't horrible. Uh, and he gets a call from his boss's boss's boss. So it was basically stop whatever you're doing. So immediately said everyone, you know, kill your processes. And what had happened was the port scan had actually flipped over the uh, IoT jets. And what happened was they had burned about $600,000 globally of manufacturing because they had burned the pies. Um, so whatever happened in this, this network was basically that these pie IoT devices, when they got too much data in, they would flop open, which I think is the exact opposite of how you would want this, but they would actually flop open and it'd go full gas. So like 800, 900 degrees versus the 350. Of course, I'm talking Fahrenheit here. Um, 350 degrees Fahrenheit that you want for the pies was up to eight or 900, I guess. Burned all the pies. Um, and so then they put it into their documentation as a mitigation. Do not scan the pie factory. Now, of course, you're, you're looking at me here and James going, yes, that's wonderful that you've told your pen testers not to do that. Uh, but it was considered an acceptable business risk to um, not mitigate that any further because of how the IoT network worked, which is a sad reality of life sometimes. Um, but yeah, don't scan the pie factory. That's my career advice for anyone. I don't know what your pie factory is, but don't scan it. Just let it be. I think we found the title for the episode right there. The uh, We don't scan the pie factory. I, I love the fact they've gone to the effort of rather than sort of fixing it or looking at other solutions that it was just we accept the risk we're going to document you don't scan the pie factory i mean it's easy to say otherwise right but when you're talking a global interconnected network you're talking you know for them that was a really bad risk but it never happened before um i might make a different decision but i can't put my you know i try never to victim blame and that's a hard it you know I, hopefully they've made it this was many years ago uh, hopefully they've mitigated it since I, I assume they have but yeah um poems are a thing as we say in the government absolutely there's there's a, a lot of examples obviously i'm sure you've been on many engagements where people obviously want to know in advance when you're running a scan of the network because they'll turn off all the systems they don't want you to know about and all that kind of thing if you've come across any other examples of, of those kind of hiding systems and avoiding the, the the tests and the scans you know i haven't seen i haven't seen as much intentionally hiding what i've seen a lot is you know once in my career uh, we were being pen tested myself and uh, my my colleague and I were very good uh, at what we did. And we caught the pen testers who were very bad at what they did in the reconnaissance space. And uh, of course, here I'm referring to the Lockheed Martin cyber kill chain, where the very far left is reconnaissance and the very far right is, you know, data leaving your network exfiltration. So we, for the most part, in the shop I worked at, were able to primarily catch data um, upon ingress. So we would usually find adversaries as they were trying to land binaries on our systems and then if we were not doing our jobs super well, we would catch them as they started to move laterally. But rarely action on objective, very, very rarely exfil. So this time we actually caught them on reconnaissance because we had alerts set up in domain tools and other technologies that were actually looking for, you know, kind of puny code for the organization I worked at or typo squatting, whatever it be. Anyway, long story short, we found some evidence and ripped apart their entire attacking infrastructure very quickly and determined that it looked like they were going to be attacking us. And because of their tradecraft, it was very obvious it was a small mom and pop sort of pen testing firm. Fine. Blocked it all, wrote up the report and sent it. Not long later, we get a call from one of our bosses like, hey, great job. I need you to completely undo all that work. So what are you talking about? We found the pen test. He's like, well, you didn't really get the pen test experience, though. It's like, well, our entire defense methodology is based on this concept of stopping them as soon as possible. So if you don't let us stop them there, you know, it's kind of like going to a fortress and saying, hey, you need to get rid of your walls. Uh, I know they worked really well stopping them coming in, but if you can just unlock the doors and let the adversary in, we really want to test you there. I was like, this is a success story. They're like, no, we need to test, which at the time I was very angry about because we had geared so much work towards. Now with a little bit more gray in my beard, I can see what the person was trying to say. They just didn't articulate very well, which was like what they should have said was, hey, great job. You guys passed this section of it. Let's assume compromise, though. Let's assume that they'd gotten in a way that you didn't know. And now let's see what happens. And I probably would have been more receptive. But at the time, it felt punitive. Um, 
so kind of going through that, but that was a case where the pen testers, we kind of had to keep, we kept catching them and then being told catch and release. Like, okay, let him go. Let him keep going. I was like, yeah, this is killing me. Uh, why are we even doing this? Like, just let them run rampant or not. I, I don't care anymore. Um, that's a, it's an interesting challenge. That the same thing with the pie factory, where as a security professional, you see things and you understand them in a certain context. And maybe you say, well, what if a nation state turns the pie factory into a crematorium overnight? Or in this case, you know, why would we let this happen? Have you got any advice for people who are maybe earlier on in their careers who are facing these frustrations of the business just doesn't get it or they don't seem they get it? Or maybe you as the professional security professional don't get the business perspective. I, I'll, I'll two uh, metaphors, anecdotes, or bad stories for you there. Um, the first is many years ago, I didn't quite understand the advice at the time, but I do now. I had a, a very senior um, kind of a Richard Stallman looking fellow uh, tell me, do you know what the difference between a junior engineer and a senior engineer is? I was like, no. And he's like, well, when your boss comes to you and asks you, can you build a, a nanotube bridge to the moon? If you're a junior engineer, you stop and you think about it because you have the same information as a senior engineer and you stop and you think about it and you said, well, in your mind you go, if we invent this new technology, if the weight of this is going like that, if the title pull isn't this bad, if we can get past this one physics problem, which I think is going to be solved in the next five or six years, yeah, yeah, I think we can do it. Where the senior engineer just goes, no, we can't. And of course, the difference here is knowing what's being asked, right? With the, when the boss comes and asks you an impossible task, he's not asking you if it's possible eventually. He's asking you if it's possible now, uh, which I think is a very big difference and something that it took me a lot of experience. And now perhaps if, I, if I'm very kind to myself, wisdom to understand through a lot of pain of that sort of methodology, right? It's not, is it possible? Is it possible now? And also put in the calculus of, is it worth the pain to go through, right? Um, it doesn't matter if you can bridge, you know, I just saw something the other day asking if, um, they could build a bridge between Northern Ireland and Scotland. Uh, there's a 30 mile gap, absolutely technologically possible. turns out it would cost about 70 billion pounds. Uh, and they'd also have to remove about 300,000 tons of chemical weapons that were dumped in between the cha in the channel with some of the fastest moving currents. So is it possible? Absolutely. Is it possible? Categorically? No, we're not doing that. What I've learned in my career now, um, and I think this is, we talked briefly um, a bit ago with the friends about this term cyber resiliency, which has come up a lot uh, in CISO world and various concepts. And I, you know, I pushed against it, like I talked about earlier. I'm a little bit hesitant because in my world, cyber resiliency was, can you stop a missile? Uh, can you keep up network operations? But the modern interpretation, uh, which I really kind of like this idea, is the reality that if a CEO could lay off every single security person that exists, they would. We are so expensive. We provide no value to the business other than, as you have mentioned earlier, CIA, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. If they could get rid of us with chat GPT tomorrow, I would be begging on the corner, right? The, the reality is the business does not want security. They need security professionals. Um, and the concept of cyber resiliency is that your job is not to have a perfect security environment. Your job is to make sure the business, and whether that be the U.S. government, whether that be the USS Kitty Hawk, whether that be Splunk, you know, whether that be Fortune 100, the job of a security professional is to keep that business running with as little cost to the business as possible. And so I think that's the one thing that every security professional should remember is we have a really cool, awesome job that no one else cares about or even wants to exist. And at the end of the day, if you can make a return on investment for your existence in the company, if you can turn it from saying no to yes, but you will have a lot more success than just about everything you do within that organization. So there's my five cents worth of advice on that. I think that's wonderful advice. And just on that thing of your job is to keep things up, keep things going. Tell us about taking down the seventh fleet. <laughs> um, yeah. So years ago, uh, tied back to my Navy days, we were coming back into port after the invasion of Iraq. And we had been out to sea for about 105, 110 days straight. I was a single gentleman, no family. So I volunteered to take on everyone's shifts that I could who had family. And I was also fairly senior. So it was the right thing to do. I was a second class petty officer at the time. And part of your job when a ship pulls in is obviously the gangway comes down, people run off the boat. Uh, and as soon as pretty much everyone is off the ship in the arms of their uh, their loved ones, 
then the real work starts. So these are things like a ship out to sea has a very different operating rhythm than a ship in port. So you do things like probably everything you've thought of before. You have sewage on a ship. You're going to want to connect that to a landline. So a very nasty big pipe gets plugged in the side of the ship. You don't want to run the the carriers. Um, we had coal or oil engines, but nuclear engines, whatever they be, you don't want to run those in port. So they actually have giant power cables that they drag across. They plug into the ship. It runs the entire ship. Uh, water. You don't want to be running the desalinator in port. So you bring in water pipes and internet. Um, you know, on the shore side, we had OC12, giant fiber connectors running, you know, massive amount of bandwidth, gigs a second. It was awesome. Uh, you want to bring that over. So my job being in communications at the time was shifting basically the flag of our network operations from the antenna that went up into space, bounced off a satellite and went to Hawaii to port side in Yokosuka, Japan, meaning the OC12 would come in. And the way you do that is you go, you connect the computer, you connect the, you connect the um, OC12 into the side of the ship, you go into your Cisco router, you disable the satellite interface, and you turn on the shore side interface. And when you do that, of course, open shortest path first, OSPF, a very old but still useful protocol, looks at everything, goes, great, I don't have an access off anymore. I'm going to rearrange all the traffic to go out through the OC12. Wonderful, right? Um, I forgot a critical step because of the craziness of the day of disabling our satellite antenna. So what happened was um, OSPF occurred. So as the, oh, the open shortest path protocol propagated, it started telling everyone it could talk to that, hey, I have a direct route through an antenna off a satellite to um, Hawaii. The weakness of OSPF at the time, I'm sure it still is, I haven't really dug into it much since uh, for 10 years, 15 years, was that it counts links, not length. So all it knows is that there is just one stop in between it and where it's trying to get to versus the port connection, the, the shore side connection in Japan, which had 15, because it had a whole bunch of little stops that it had to go through, which meant that every ship in the entire 7th Fleet that was connected to me uh, via this kind of open protocol in the in y in Yokosuka, Japan, everyone that was connected to the shore um, connection, their router said, "Oh my God, there's a there's a two link route to Hawaii instead of a sixteen route link to Hawaii. This is great." So their open short shortest per, you know OSPF protocol uh, went ahead and rearranged itself, where everyone in the Seventh Fleet that was a ship was basically going through my router to go up to Hawaii and then back down. Which meant that I think, honestly, I think it was one or two megs a second, something like that. It was very slow. It was very long ago. Uh, everyone in the fleet was basically going through my poor little microwave antenna, uh, which resulted in a very angry CCIE calling me from Hawaii and very tersely saying, turn off your port. So that was the, uh, the day that uh, the day the seventh fleet had their internet much slowed down because of a, uh, a naval issue from me. So. Uh, but that kind of thing that, Obviously, you you were saying you know it was kind of pre-internet. Well, Google, sorry, and cybersecurity was a kind of a new thing, and there's probably very few people working in there. So when when an incident like that occurred, was it just literally yourself and maybe a handful of people that could respond to it and understand what was going on there? On the ship, yeah. I mean, and actually, at the time, I was the only person because I'd sent everyone else, like let everyone yeah. else go, uh, or they were more senior than me and they were going to leave me alone anyway. Um, so honestly, it was the people in the Hawaii uh, telco office, which is giant. I mean, that does all of the West Coast of, you know, the Pacific Ocean for the Navy. So dozens of CCIEs there. But I'm sure they were very confused because it's a very slow trickle down effect of no obvious. This was a very dumb thing to have, have happened. Um, it's very reasonable, but it's very dumb. So it's not what your Occam's razor is going to be. Uh, so I think mm -hmm. what happened was basically if someone called and said, hey, my Internet's really slow. And they're like, probably a you problem. 10 minutes later, maybe the USS John S. McCain called and said, hey, my internet is slow. They're like, oh, that's weird. Maybe there's a problem on the, you know, on the pier with the, the fiber or something. Then maybe someone else from a different pier called like later and they're like, that's interesting. Now we have three ships that are all slow internet. They're not confined. To and then they start going through it. Eventually they'll tell that in very, very slowly. And eventually someone I'm sure ran the, um, like show the, show my route back to me command and realized that it was going through a, a carrier rather than a shore based command with much, you know, with a direct undersea cable to Hawaii. So, um, 
I think it was an easy problem to solve and probably an easy problem that was difficult to diagnose because no one should be that dumb as I was. 22-year-old Kovar made a very dumb mistake. Not permanent, thankfully, but... Yeah, it's, it's at 22 years old, that's a lot of responsibility and a lot of ability to, you know, if you do the wrong thing, screw up a vast amount of military hardware potentially there. In, in terms of just one last question on that, actually, if in terms of like you being the, the sort of one of the small handful of IT professionals on, on board a ship and you've got the sort of hierarchy of, of command there, would the people above you literally not understanding the technology side of things and just, just please make it work? They would not, no. Um, no, there was no one, and I'm not trying to compliment myself here. It's just the, the majority of, there were very smart humans on communications on that ship, but they dealt with radios. That was the primary method yeah. that warships had communicated for, you know, a hundred years. Um, and so a lot of the people who were in the ranks above me were people who could bounce a signal off the troposphere. Uh, they could do ultra low frequency calculations in their head. Uh, they knew where the cables for extra low frequency in, in Michigan were buried. Uh, but if you ask them to explain a, an IP or a domain, they're completely lost. And part of this was generational. Um, we had, I only stayed in for four years because my salary in the U.S. Navy was $11,000. And when I got out with overtime, it was $100,000 doing the same job, uh, just consulting back to the Navy. So the Navy couldn't keep people in to get more senior. They have now. They've started to figure it out. Um, some sure. of my peers who went in with me did stay and they've made a huge impact. Thank God. But when I was there at the time, the, I had contractors I could call in San Diego for costs to the, to the Navy. Um, but other than that, at the time I was probably one of the most, I was probably the most senior person for networking on the ship. Uh, so if I couldn't figure it out, no one could. Um, and then there were people I could have called in, uh, like in, on the base in Yakuska who probably knew more than me, but. At the time, I didn't even know there was a problem, so I didn't, yeah. No one was checking on my work because I was the checker of other people's work, and that was it. And were you just in, enjoying the work, or were you really feeling under the pressure because of that level of responsibility and that small amount? It was definitely pressure. Um, I think sometimes there's an arrogance of youth that you don't, pr I, I look back now and say, wait, how much budget did I control? How many people work for me? How much like area of responsibility? And now my understanding is the Navy doesn't really allow for that level, uh, but it kind of goes back to that race condition of there wasn't anyone else and who else would have it. But, you know, it was a lot of pressure. And, you know, I wasn't in combat by any means, or at least direct combat. We were in combat zones, but we did have things like if we screwed up a... If our servers weren't online, the admirals couldn't make decisions that could impact the war effort. Yeah. Um, and that was very important to us. Um, so we had a mandate, you know, we weren't, you know, we weren't in the tanks invading Baghdad and we weren't on horses riding through the hills of Afghanistan after Taliban. But every time that we had a degradation of service, it could have impacted or it did impact people's lives and ability to function and execute on the war effort. Um, so it was a lot of pressure. I don't think I realized it at the time how much um, because you're just doing your job. But now I look back and go, holy crap, like that was a lot for a 22 year old. When I looked at my peers in high school who were still in college and, you know, the biggest thing they had to worry about which which girl for the homecoming, you know, party, you know, and I was worrying about, you know, oh, can we keep up the email server so the Admiral can send out the flight plans for the war? Fascinating, fascinating level of responsibility. And like you say, maybe you were, the arrogance of youth maybe got you through some of it with, um, with that, that level of confidence. Yeah, if you don't know better, it's incredible how much you can suffer through, I think. that's a... uh, Absolutely, yeah. And now when you look back on it, you think, why, why on earth did I do that? Um, shifting from kind of the, the physical warfare space more into the sort of modern cyberspace, um, I believe you've been doing some work around Lockbit and looking at this claims of it being the fastest compiling ransomware available and looking into some of the, the markets that are out there for, for ransomware threat actors. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So my current role, I run a, uh, a strategic cybersecurity research team, like we said, the blue collar for the blue team. And one of the gentlemen on my team, Shannon Davis, had just done a phenomenal bit of work answering a, a key question. That's usually how we start our research. We start with a hypothesis or a question that we can't find an answer to. And in this case, we looked at ransomware. We said, God, people have worked their butts off on ransomware. There's so much work there, but everyone is super interested in it still. Is there a new angle we can look at? And one of the things that I just had never read 
that I asked Shannon to kind of look into was around the concept of how fast does ransomware actually execute? How much time do you have from double clicking to, um, you know, actually having your machine compromised? And of course, there's always these TV tropes, right? Where someone double clicks on a file and a skull pops up. So you rip the computer out the wall, right? Um, would that have worked? Would that have helped? I didn't know. Um, so Shannon worked on a bit of research that went through and he picked 10 different ransomware samples, um, or sorry, ransomware families, and then he picked 10 randomized samples within each one of those families, created a test harness, um, and then ran those binaries against 100,000 files, 50 gigs per file, or 50 gigs per corpus of random desktop-y sort of, you know, mm -hmm. cell documents, Word documents, PDFs, and ran this thousands of times in the long run, and actually came up with numbers around which ransomware family runs the fastest, which ransomware version runs the fastest, uh, and just on a median, how long do you have? Uh, so the median was about 40 minutes, 42 minutes, I think. And then the fastest ransomware was Lockbit 2.0, which actually would execute pretty consistently under five minutes. Um, I think the median for Lockbit sample that we ran uh, the fastest was about four minutes and 52 seconds. And so the concept there was now you can go back and really make some educated decisions around how you perform security. Because I see a lot of people really focusing on the detection of ransomware. And I think that's very valuable occasionally. Um, but there's also an aspect of the nice thing about ransomware is it tells you when you've been compromised. That's the big difference between APT actors. You know, APT actors never want to be found. They want to be persistent. Um, you know, the P for ransomware is being paid, not persistent. So they tell you, you know, they pop up a dancing skull. They put up a ransomware note. They send something to a website. So... My thinking was, I don't have to worry about finding out if I have ransomware because it's going to tell me. It's not only going to tell me that I have ransomware, it's going to tell me that who it is, right? So attribution is done. Like, I never get that with Russia or China. So the nice thing here was we thought, well, with this evidence, you can go back and say, listen, you don't really have a choice. Once It's kind of like getting a, kind of like getting rabies. Once you have rabies, you're dead. It might take you a week. It might take you an hour, but you're not living. You're dead. Um, ransomware is kind of similar. Once you double click on that, I can't think of a single sock in the world that can recover in four minutes and 52 seconds and stop it. 40 minutes is pushing the best socks in the world. So stop looking after ransomware is executed. Start looking left of boom, back to the Lockheed Martin cyber kill chain. And so what we found was CERT New Zealand had actually done a phenomenal bit of work tracing the adversary life cycle of ransomware. And what they found, and which we concurred with based on our own research, was that it's exactly the same as APTs. It's coming in, it's ingressing through spear phishing emails or open ports or misconfigured systems. It's using Cobalt Strike. It's moving laterally using PSExec or PowerShell or the move command. They're gaining persistence or understanding the most valuable files. And at the very end of it, instead of just staying, they encrypt files and they get paid. Um, you know, we actually, the Mandian M trend report from last year, I think said the dwell time for an adversary was five minutes. And then anecdotally, we had one of our customers we talked to who doesn't want to be quoted, but they let me tell the story. They said of a seven day, I think it was seven days, seven day um, dwell time for the adversary, the only time they brought on anything that had to do with ransomware, specifically ransomware, was the last one minute and 40 seconds or something like that. So basically at the very end, they ran a PowerShell script that did a download cradle, went off to a remote server downloaded down a binary onto like 30 systems at critical company data, and then the PowerShell executed that ransomware. So the entire time that ransomware was on the network was like a minute 40. Yeah. So look left. Absolutely. Um, so that was a big work. The fun part about this was, you know, ransomware in the file itself brags about being the most fast software. Like they really brag about, hey, listen, this is the single best part about our software. We are the fastest encryptor which I think is fascinating because no one in the blue team side, no one in the network defense side was talking about that this is what they're bragging about. But to them, the value proposition for their software is that it's the fastest. To the point where if you went to the Onion website for Lockbit, you know, on the darkish grayish web, you know, they actually had a marketing slick that actually went down 30 different types of ransomware binaries and they did their own speed analysis. So they're the only ones other than ourselves who we found who had actually done this analysis of side by side. So we actually wrote a follow-up blog uh, where we actually went through and we just did a comparison directly. By we, I mean Shannon Davis did a co direct comparison all the way through every single one of the binaries that they cited. Now, the reason they did that is they were trying to sell their hottest new software, Lockbit 3.0. And they're saying, this is the new fastest. Well, 
Our research actually showed that it was not. It was actually like the 15th fastest. However, Lockbit 2.0 was still the fastest. Um, this ruffled a bit of feathers, and Shannon's work actually got, we had a friend of ours who's in the forums for Lockbit, and he actually wrote us and sent us a screenshot, said, oh, isn't this your white paper? And so the Lockbit authors were actually dealing with customers talking about it or discussing it openly on the forums and kind of rebutting it. But, you know, we had science behind us, so we're, we'll stand by our findings. Um, you know, if they want to submit something to a peer-reviewed journal, we'll happy to discuss. What, what, um, I know you, you don't try and get into the reverse engineering side yourself, but what accounted for the, the differences in the, the time to encryption? Was it just they didn't understand the code well enough? or um, You know, it's just a different approach. Um, I'm going to slaughter some of the names, so I apologize. But the, the general concept here is you have some ransomware that encrypts everything, right? So you have a one meg file, and they encrypt one yep. meg of it. Uh, you have some ransomware that only encrypts the first 4K of a file, right? Which I love because some people are like, oh, it's not as good. I'm like, oh, I, I challenge you to open up that Word document that you have that 4K of it is encrypted. Let me know how that works out. Not saying it isn't mm -hmm. recoverable. But if you have hundreds of terabytes or fives of terabytes or 50 gigs of encryption like that, you're kind of screwed. Um, and then other types of ransomware actually do intermittent encryption. So they might only do 4K, but they do it across the entire file. And so each one of those has a different area of speed increase or of efficacy. You know, some of the other things, and Shannon, um, Shannon did a lot of work on reviewing how ransomware actually optimizes um, performance metrics, metrics or, or sorry, performance specs mm -hmm. of a machine. So one of the things we did is actually his research not only had like a an average desktop sort of spec system, it had a high end server spec system, and we we changed the IOPS on the hard drives, and we changed the RAM and the processor. And a couple of things we found was, you know, a no surprise, encryption is math, and so the processor is always the hardest hit. But some of them had no impact because of the IOPS of the hard drive. Some of them did. Um, some used no memory, others did. And some, if you had too high spec of a system, the malware was so poorly written, it would crash. It was actually too fast. Um, so it's some of those interesting outputs there, um, you know, they're not metricized on how well their software is written. They're metricized on getting paid. And so that drives a very different behavior. Um, you know, no one's, it's pretty hard to get a refund from a ransomware operator. Not saying it doesn't happen, but uh, for the most part, you're, you're more than welcome to swing by their office in Crimea and um, talk to them directly if you want. It reminds me, I used to um, run a malware lab a few years ago, and one of the demos we used to do was have a machine that we'd installed a physical floppy drive, disk drive onto, just because of some of the ransomware strains at the time would go through drives in alphabetical order. So as soon as you heard the drive going, you knew that, that you'd been infected with the ransomware because it would always start with the A drive, and then, yeah, you'd hear the kadunk, and you were away. So it, it, yeah, we looked at, um, you know, we, we did have systems that were configured with map drives and all sorts of things like that just to be able to verify uh, which was interesting. One thing I will say is, you know, we didn't have an instruction manual for every bit of ransomware. So one variable that we were unable to account for is if people were using advanced switches, uh, which some of the ransomware would map by default and others, you actually had to configure the mapped uh, option, which we did not do. Um, but it was a fascinating look into a world that I had, if I'm honest, I'd look down on uh, a little bit of a back to that air. I guess I'm just arrogant. Um, you know, my whole career had been nation state. And when I first got introduced to ransomware, I was like, oh, this is just, you know, Zeus times three. Uh, I don't <laughs> yeah. care. Now I, I'm kind of the other way. It, it's fascinating. The complexity of the international markets, the fact that this is, you know, you hear ransomware as a service. It's really ransomware as a gig economy. Uh, people talk yeah. about Lockbit like they're ubiquitous, but the reality is Lockbit is an amorphous collection of multiple different groups and people and contractors and intrusion access brokers and malware developers. It's, you know, it's a very complicated area. I, I have a lot of sympathy, not only for people who get infected for obvious reasons, but that I'm often asked, like, do you pay ransom or not? And I don't have an answer because I, I think that's very personal. But I know I always advise people who ask me, like, well, you need to be cognizant of the implications of paying ransom. If you pay ransom to the wrong group that is then, you know, in the U.S. at least, declared a terrorist organization, <laughs> are you now liable for funding terrorism? And the answer is yes, I believe. Um I wouldn't want to have that conversation with my general counsel or the U.S. federal, you know, attorney office. Uh, so it's it's hard. Same in the U.K. and the EU, um, we, we have the same thing of funding terrorism, and uh, it, it is very difficult. I think the the interesting thing as well you mentioned about shifting left and whether we're thinking kind of Lockheed Martin or MITRE attack framework, broadly talking about the same thing that the earlier you can stop it, the better. And I think that is one of the things that you know I you go to conferences and people have talked ransomware to death. And people are obsessed with the the final payload 
And it's like, that doesn't just appear by magic on a system. They've got to have, you know, gained that initial access. They've got to have done some reconnaissance. And, you know, the company Beyond Trust, we talk about privilege management and, and admin rights being used and abused and things like that. I think it's much more interesting, right? Like, I, I don't actually care about the ransomware binary. I'll be, I'll be controversial there. It's, it's malware. I mean, if there's one thing that came out of this for me, it's like, it's demystifying. Like, ransomware is just malware that gets you paid. If you can figure out how it's delivered, if you can find out the methodology, like, that's what's interesting to me. Like, there's all these paths that I, I love the stories of the intrusion access brokers. Like, the idea there's just a group of people who all they're doing is popping shells and then just selling access onto other people. And they're like, I don't know what you're doing with it, but like, not my problem here. Off you go. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, it's just an interesting area to your point it's and maybe this is my own bias against uh static malware again right like I, I think it is useful i think it's important to know how this works but if i really look at the bigger impact it's how it gets on the system how the adversary is moving how are they choosing their i mean i see a world i see a world where we get to the point where adversaries aren't even encrypting systems anymore they're just taking a screenshot and sending a single email off to a cfo and a ceo and saying i'm in your boxes I can cause you $10 million of damage and then you pay, or you can pay me $1 million now and this all goes away and no one needs to know. Uh, and so that, you know, we've, we've moved to extortion, right? Like that's been the first one is we went through and pay to get the decryptor key to pay or I'll, I'll unlock all your files in the public internet. I think we're going to move to a third area where it's like, well, let's just get rid of all that and you and me have a, a secret deal and no one needs to know. Absolutely. Well, we've seen it in some of the, the research that we've done um, where we've looked at the threat actors and they will not only try and blackmail the organization based on some screenshots, and we've seen quite a lot of this uh, with some recent breaches, um, high-profile organizations where they've been breached and it's just been screenshots of virtual desktop things. They haven't you know, necessarily got access to data, but they've then gone on to partners and people who do business with you and saying, well, we've got all this, this data compromised, we'll yeah. expose it. And then the really bizarre one, which I hadn't even thought of previously, was insider trading, where they are going out to people in advance and saying, we've breached this organization, we'll be publishing it all online at this date. So, you know, position yourself in the markets appropriately, because their share price is going to take a hit. So okay. things like that. And it's all about chasing the money. But ultimately, like you say, the, the interesting thing to me with ransomware is it, it's not the cause of your problems. It's just a symptom of the problems that you've had when you've been breached. It's the economics, the economy of it. I mean, I have people said, oh, why are you so interested in it? You know, back to the point is that the malware, like, and there's really interesting malware. But I think for me, it's just, you know, we've heard a lot. A good friend of mine, Mick Boccio, works for me now. But we were talking about the, we were joking about the hackback. And, you know, is the U.S. federal government going to start encouraging hackback? And obviously, uh, you know, folks from Risky Business, um, you know, Patrick Gray, another wonderful podcast. Like, they mm. talk about, like, oh, let loose the dogs of war. And I think there is a growing appetite in the U.S. federal government to kind of do that for a bit. And we're starting to see it, right? The FBI is doing takedowns. Um, the NSA maybe is doing takedowns. Who knows? But Colonial Pipeline, certainly, uh, yeah, you can do a lot of things. Go after our hospitals, fine. But God forbid you attack our gas lines. Um, we are doing things there. And this concept of the letters of marquee, right, that could be issued by the federal government to organizations to go hack um, ransomware operators in other countries that are sponsored or sheltered. It's just a fascinating amalgamation. I, I, it's hard for me to get my head around, especially as the difference between nation state sponsored and nation state and crime are yeah. all kind of coming together. You know, you have reports now where Chinese APT groups are running ransomware at the end of their intrusion in order to obfuscate or completely remove evidence of their activity. Um, it's just, I find those various nuances fascinating. Uh, yeah, definitely. It's, it's a really interesting time to be doing it. What are your thoughts on the, the sort of briefly on, on the hackback thing? Cause to my mind, it, I get a nation state wanting to make a point, but actually at the end of the day, it's not actually making anyone necessarily any more secure by taking out one threat actor. I think it's an interesting technique for governments to use that escalates, but not to a kinetic level. Um, you know, I don't want to pop anyone's balloon, pun intended, after uh, this weekend off North Carolina, but it, it does provide an ability for someone to reach out internationally and inflict damage or occur cost without killing someone or destructing a building. Um, or occasionally, maybe, uh, if you look at things like Stuxnet. Um, 
will we go to war because someone hacked us? Yeah, well, we actually have kinetic warfare after a nation state attack on our power plants. I think we're closer to that than perhaps we've ever been, but I still think that's a, a small escalation up. Um, if you look at things like the Ukraine conference, or sorry, the, the Ukrainian conflict with the Russian invasion, you know, I, I've had a lot of questions from people saying like, oh, you've been talking about Russia as one of the apex APT actors for years, but they didn't do anything. I was like, no, they did a lot. They got caught for some. They didn't get caught for a whole bunch, but I think the rules of engagement for the Russian APT actors was rather restrained in order not to inflame a larger geopolitical issue. Um, and then secondly, why send malware when you can send a cruise missile? You know, the, the most amount of APT activity was against the Russian power plants in the beginning of the war when they thought they were going to roll over Russia and then, or sorry, roll over Ukraine and occupy it. When that didn't happen, then they started sending kinetic missiles to actually inflict damage. So I look at it as I think that governments have cyber attacks as a fifth or sixth, perhaps, domain of warfare to utilize. And they are. They're actively doing it, um, whether it be for intelligence or disruption. But um, the concept of hackback, I kind of put more in the realm of theatrics rather than um, applicable tools, I guess, if I were to, as I walk my thrift through that thought. No, that's a, it's a nice answer. And um yeah, it's be interesting to see how these things evolve as they are rapidly evolving at the moment. So shifting back to the defensive side, because I think that's something you're really passionate about. And often when you're talking to people in cybersecurity, people get very hyped up about red teaming and pen testing engagements and breaking all the things. But they often don't focus on the blue teaming side of things and the excitement that can be had there and, and stopping the things. Like you said earlier, you know, you dealt with a pen test engagement where you were able to catch them very early, and that was, a, you know, for you, great satisfaction. So one of the things I associate you with is boss of the sock and bringing that excitement to people in the tabletop. So could you maybe tell, talk to us about how that came about and why you think that's important to do? Sure. The, the very short answer is I hate booth duty, and my boss said, uh, if you don't want to sit at the booth, then you need to come up with something that gets you out of that. And I said, great, I will. The longer answer is that I... I've never really liked doing capture the flags, um, which makes me a bad security professional, but I just didn't care about popping shells. I understand the, I understand the desire, but it didn't speak to me. And a lot of times I, when I go to conferences, when I do things, I want to build my professional abilities. Um, and I knew I wasn't going to go into red teaming. So it didn't really make a lot of sense for me to spend six hours fuzzing an application server, hoping to find a vulnerable version of, you know, uh, IIS. It just didn't really appeal. But I did see the value in practicing your skills against a, a safe a safe space that you could actually go through because one of the biggest issues I had training people for blue team was always like, well, this is what it's going to look like. They're like, well, how does it look? I'm like, well, unfortunately, we don't have an example of it or, okay, we can look through some data, but we've already aged that data out. It was just difficult to kind of go through that. There's great exercises by SANS called NetWars, uh, which kind of replicates this uh, this blue team CTF concept, but it tends to use open source tools, which makes perfect sense. No, no knock there. It didn't really use the tools, though, that modern security professionals use. It uses things that either you don't use because you have no money or that you're in college, which are perfectly, there's no knock there. But I worked at Splunk, and obviously we wanted to use Splunk because that's what a lot of people in the world used, and they also pay my bills, so it makes the most sense. So we tried to create something along the lines of a blue team CTF, but we wanted to do it more than a training lab exercise. So the, the way we created it was we actually start with a diamond model. So we go back to a bit of my threat intel background and we create an adversary using that diamond model. Then we create a victim. And what we did was we created one eventually called Frothly, which was a small home brewing store that eventually got a brewery and some other aspects via M&A. But the concept was you had to be constrained. If you're not constrained, you just go all over the place. So we said, well, they, this is how big their budget is. This is their skill sets. You know, we can wave a little bit of a magic wand in a couple places, but those are our constraints. And then the other side, we went through, and now we have our, you know, the diamond model, one of which is a victim. So now we have our victim uh, axes or indice done. So then we went through and said, okay, like, what are we replicating? So like one year we did North Korean groups. So we did Lazarus and we did Slime Time and we did a couple others. So we took and picked and chose out of which one of those we liked the best. And then we called them Taedong Gong, which is actually a North Korean brewing company. 
Uh, and that was the APT group that was attacking Frothley because they wanted to steal Frothley's intellectual property. And so we were tied there by the constraints of what we took from these North Korean APT groups and how they would use it. And I, I don't remember all the specifics, but let's just say like, oh, they had to use DigitalOcean. Um, oh, by the way, they wrote their playbooks in Hangul word processor .hwp, which is unused outside of South and North Korea. Um, so we had things like when they left a dropper, they would accidentally delete the .hwp file um, and that would go in the, the recycling bin. And as they cleaned up the rest of their, you know, their intrusion, they forgot that it went into the recycling bin. So now you have a little nugget saying like, oh, that's interesting. Like, here's some instructions. And everything we did was tied to MITRE ATT&CK. And every attack that we used was actually tied to open source reporting showing that that occurred. And so sometimes, you know, we would have customers play and they're like, this is really dumb. No adversary would ever do that. And I'd say like, oh, you're thinking about that from a red teamer like perspective where you're incentivized to do innovative, interesting attacks. Realize that the North Korean adversaries are incentivized to get your data. They don't really care if it works and it's stupid. It worked. They don't care. So here's three reports that call out this TTP that we use. They're like, oh, my God, they actually do that in the real world. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Um, and because we do it across the whole kill chain, we would do things like write custom malware and have that malware beaconing out to our infrastructure. And then we would actually upload that malware over iterations into virus total. And then each iteration will get better and better and better, just like you see adversaries doing. And so then like one of the questions would be like the reconnaissance phase of a nation state attack. How could you find out evidence of what else they're attacking? Well, you'd be able to find it because that one submitter ID put in four other pieces of malware, which are attacking three other companies. And so now you actually can crawl up this, you can start pivoting. So although it was a Splunk CTF, 20 or 30% of it by basically our rules has to be outside of Splunk um, using open source intelligence or, you know, decrypting or, you know, all sorts of things like that. It's really nice to see that the blue teaming efforts there just being born out and being, you know, getting people excited about that experience of dealing with a real world incident understanding that it's related to actual activity as well it's an absolute rush i mean we've had you know we had 1100 people in a room playing boss of the sock one year in las vegas before covid which i think has to be one of the largest in-person blue team ctfs ever run uh, and i think we just we went over 50 or 60 thousand people who've played it online and in person now uh, since we started seven years ago seven or eight years ago um, so it's been a huge impact on my life. I've learned so much and having people come up to me and say like, oh, wow, that really, you know, that made me fall in love with security or, oh, I learned so much that day. And this is how we found an adversary or my personal favorite is when I have someone from a really high end shop come up to me and just like, yeah, that was, uh, that was this adversary. I know what you did there. That was clever. Like walk away. And like, it's such a deep pull, like just only. Yeah. Like, I knew so few people would get that, but the ones who did, they're like, oh, shit, like, I saw this, like, that happened to me. Um, and that's a lot of fun. That made us, it was great. Uh, I ran it for many years. I've now turned it over to a good friend of mine, Tom Smith, who's kind of keeping it up. I'm still on the, the board of bots directors, if you will. But uh, Dave Harold and I created it years ago, and it's still going forward, which is wonderful. It's fantastic to see it keep going forward. That's, that's really good. So two final questions just before we uh, wrap up here. Uh, first one is, is there a myth uh, that you'd like to debunk about cybersecurity? Oh, I think the biggest myth is that any of us know what we're doing. Um, I have a, a bit of a trope that is I've been doing security for 24 years, I guess, now at this point. Um, and only the last two or three years of my knowledge is relevant. So any, you know, I, I know a lot about Apple Talk. I know a lot about how to crimp Cat 45 cables. I know a lot about Windows NT 4.0. If you need someone to go into an Exchange 5.5 server and defrag the priv in the pub to make sure that it still runs afterwards and then patch it with, uh, you know, without using WSUS, I'm your man. None of that matters anymore. None of it matters. So, like, I have a lot of wisdom from those experiences, but my knowledge is not as useful. So, when you look back, I'd probably say, Two years of hyper-relevant, five years of relevant, and 24 years of wisdom. Um, and I say this because I get people who come up, and especially at conference, and I want to get into cyber, but like, oh, everyone's so smart, and it's so hard to get into. And I say, you're two years away from being the world expert on a technology that got released today. Like, that's what's fascinating to me about cybersecurity is we move so fast in everything 
that at any point you can just pick something up and say, this is what I want to be the expert on because no one else in the world knows it. You know, four years ago, had you stopped and said, I want to be the king of Kubernetes, you would in fact now be the king of Kubernetes because that's how new that technology is. Um, you know, today you could be chat GPT or AI, whatever it be. Like, that's what I love about the industry. Um, you're always learning and it provides an opportunity for new people to come in at any time and just change the industry that we're in, which I love. It is very exciting. And I like the idea of being the king of Kubernetes or whatever the go. new hot thing is, the queen of chat GPT, maybe. Is there anything else you'd like to get out in the world before we wrap up? No, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I'm, it's, it's fun leading a research team right now in this world because there's always something new changing. So I guess for anyone who's interested, look us up on a, you know, get a splunksurge.com or look up Surge and Splunk, S-U-R-G-E. Uh, we're always releasing new research and derivatives. And it's usually fun and weird um, because that's just how my team works and thinks. And uh, it's kind of in our DNA. So I look forward to it, sharing what we're doing for the world. And hopefully people keep reading it and resonating and we keep going on doing fun stuff. That's great. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Ryan. It's been absolutely brilliant chatting to you. Your passion for cyber is, is quite contagious there, and it's great to see that the blue team being represented and you know being given the glory they deserve there. So I'd urge any listeners who don't already follow Ryan on Twitter to look for him at MeanSec, not only for some great security content, but some excellent dog pictures and recipe ideas as well. As always, thanks to our super producer, Ben, and the team at Beyond Trust who make this podcast happen. I'm James Maud, and this has been The Adventures of Alice and Bob. Thanks for listening to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it.